from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer of dark noir with a smattering of humor. His stories pull you down into the undertow of transgression. He's joining me today to talk about his new short story collection, Little Black Crimes. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Nathaniel Blackhelm. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me. I was really impressed with Little Black Crimes. You have a very unique voice, a flair for the transgressive, and the rare ability to romanticize the harsh realities of life. So I'm excited to have you on the show today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. So you begin the book with a quote from the Bible, Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And I may be mistaken, but I believe this verse immediately preceded God's declaration that he was going to flood the earth. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) What was the tone you were attempting to set for the book by quoting this verse? Oh, you know, just something light and airy. Light and airy? Uh, No, but... um, (laughs) I guess you can never lose with the biblical quote because a lot of the themes, the biblical themes, sum up human existence pretty well, you know, the good, the bad, and everything in between. This particular quote, it's a simple way of saying, you know, people can really suck <laughs> and they have a lot of bad things about them. They have a, a dark side, an evil side that often seems like it's going to outweigh the good. And you're right, you know, this this quote in the Bible, you know, in Genesis or whatever, I'm not a biblical scholar, but I know enough to know that it's when God's about to flood everything. Mm. But at the same time, you know, what happens after that, after he makes that declaration, is he's like, okay, but I'm not going to wipe everyone out. I'm going to leave one, you know, a seed for maybe a hope for something better, mm. you know, with Noah. So maybe there is like, if you look past just the surface of this quote, maybe there's a chance for something like redemption. Mm. So... I also just like the fact that it's from Genesis. And honestly, like, this is my coming out party. This book coming out is kind of my beginning. And I like that part about it. So, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about uh, the flood, even though some devastation was going to be meted out for the horrific condition of humanity at the time, Noah and his family were still good, were still able to be redeemed. And 
in your book, even though the characters are engaging in less than honorable things, there is still a small nugget of goodness. Well, maybe with the exception of one character, but you can find these small nuggets of goodness in the majority of them. And this book kind of highlights the the juxtaposition of the worst of humanity, but still being able to stay in touch with that original goodness that they were born with. Because contrary to the Bible, you know, the Bible says that we were all born into sin. I would say that we were all born as spiritual beings. Like, you know, you look at a baby, there's no resentment, there's no judgment or anything. He's just hungry. Good point. <laughs> he or she's just hungry. Good point. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you don't want to be too negative. There's always got to be some glimmer of hope. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's just a total bummer, like life in general, or you know, if you're reading a story and it's just all tragedy no lighter moments, no chance for redemption or anything like that. That sounds pretty bleak. So I definitely like stories that have that glimmer of hope. You can have the dark atmosphere and you can have, you know, evil characters or shady characters, but I think, you know, it's important to have some kind of optimism, some kind of light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I think hopefully, you know, readers appreciate that as well. I think too much drama, you know, if it's too weighty, too much doom and gloom. It can just be kind of overwhelming. Mm. So, yeah. In your story, 38 special kind of love, you have a very interesting narrator. There was also a very symbolic fusion of sex and violence through the narrative of the love interest, the main character, Devante of the main character, Devante, excuse me. So what were you trying to convey by presenting the story through the point of view of such an abstract narrator? It's hard to discuss without giving a light spoiler. And I've said this in some of the promo stuff, so it's cool if, if we reveal. Basically, the protagonist, the narrator, it's a twist on the femme fatale from noir. Mm -hmm. She turns out to be a gun, but you don't find that out until probably like a third of the way through the story. So for me, it was a couple things. How it came about, you know, was kind of organic. For me, it surprised me because I was writing a story from one perspective. And it was just going to be a female perspective. But then it's, I got like that far through it. And that's when I realized like, well, wait a minute, this, this could be something else. This could be like the object. This could be a, the gun itself. So for me, it's, it's also, it's a playful thing to do with the narrative, just in terms of the creative part of it. It's like also being positioned as the first story and having this kind of reversal a third of the way through. I think it puts the reader on their toes and it kind of sets them up for a way of looking at maybe the stories to come that if you stay on the surface, basically just me trying to keep readers on their toes that things might reverse or twist around in different ways or surprise the reader. And I think also just from the perspective of the character, this is a character that wants to be heard, that has a story, very much has experienced a lot of heartaches because this is a character who's repeatedly abandoned or abused or just never really... No one really sees the beauty in this character until Devante comes along. So this character has kind of um, a skeptical view of how people will view it. And that's why the character only reveals itself to the reader, you know, part of the way through. Because when the reveal comes, she says, you know, I kept this from you because if I'd said 
me and this boy fell in love, you wouldn't believe me. You know, how can an object fall in love with someone? Or how can an instrument of destruction, devastation, and death have a love life? Mm-hmm. So I think it's a way to like endear herself to the audience and kind of have them look at her in a fair way without judging her. Because when she finally says what she is, by that point, you know, hopefully the readers invest in the story and in her story and can kind of put themselves in her shoes better than if she had said that in the first line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't want to spoil the end, but uh, the fact that she continues to feel human emotions like jealousy based on what the climax of the uh, story is. It's kind of hard to put into words. That's one thing I've noticed about your writing is it's very poetic and abstract. And as you said, it's the first story you read, which, of course, was the case for me and put me on my toes <laughs> to the point where I was like, you know what? I need to get this guy on the show. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I've, got, I've got some questions. <laughs> oh, yeah. And another cool thing about that story is I think it was Chekhov who used to say, if you introduce an object in the first act or the second act, if you introduce like a gun or a weapon and or something like in the James Bond movies, for instance, you know, when Q gives James Bond like his weapons or his little tools like in that scene for every James Bond movie, you expect him to use it. You know, he's going to use it later on. So, I mean, the nature of that object, the nature of a gun is just going to go off. You know, it's meant to cause death. That's what it's used for. So I think there's a certain inevitability to the story as well. You know, it's a gun and that's what it's made for. So it's hurtling towards some kind of violent conclusion ultimately. So that's part of not revealing it till the middle third, you said, is so people don't see that coming. And it's actually considered sexual union in the story. Yeah, I mean, the thing about sex and violence being intertwined. I mean, one funny thing about in America, you know, our viewing habits is like, you can have all the violence in the world most of the time and, you know, your kids will be there. And I don't know, there's more squeamishness with the sex part, I think. Yeah. But, um, you know, sex and violence are both titillating, hmm. you know, and so kind of blending the two, I guess, just playing with that concept of those titillating elements, I guess, and kind of trying to pull them together into one thing. Well, in your story, The uh, Misconception, you have multiple themes of how a woman's body is controlled, abused, and objectified. So which of those themes would you say had the biggest role in driving the story forward from bad to worse? So I think the main character in this story, Mari, for me, she's kind of like my concept of the final girl. Mm -hmm. And she's being victimized from multiple angles, as you mentioned. On the one hand, she's being victimized by society because, you know, in the first section of the story, it's like in her locality, abortion is now banned past the point of conception. There can be no abortion. And as a result of that happening, it sets this other victimizing element into motion, which is Adam, this character who's been waiting around for the chance to kill himself. But before he kills himself, he wants to plant his seed into the world. The only thing that was stopping him, though, is that he didn't know if his victim would keep the baby. So now that this thing has been passed, he's like, oh, now it's my time. You know, I'm set in motion now. So she has those two things working against her, but also she's victimizing herself because she's anorexic and she's starving herself. So I just like the idea of her facing those challenges, but also I like the idea of, for me, like anorexia is like the ultimate 
form of self-destruction because it's like a seed's been planted in your mind about your body. Like you can't get your body good enough for your own standards. And then you stop eating and you stop intake of food. And it's like, I like this idea of that form of self-destruction somehow leading in a twisted way toward a salvation Hmm. of some sort. So, you know, again, without like huge spoilers at the end, the fact that she does starve herself ultimately proves kind of useful in her journey, I would say, even though it's a dark as hell outcome for her. But again, like maybe there's a glimmer of hope in the fact that this thing she's done to herself has somehow prevented an even greater tragedy from happening to her. I just like that concept and that idea. I thought it was, you know, an interesting setup. Yeah, it also seems like society has a role as well in her anorexia because she's at a fashion show which I mean, that's right. where where else can you go to see women objectified than a than a fashion show? That's I guess, right. I guess it's mainly about the fashion, but you know, there's some some pretty harsh standards that lead to anorexia. That's true. Yeah, it's like this preteen fashion show going on, and it's almost like a form of kitty porn or something because it's like all these older people are standing around like with their mouths agape as these mm-hmm. preteens strut on the stage. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, Mari's in the audience and she's just watching this happen and thinking about like how insecure she is and how insufficient she feels compared to the bodies that she sees on the stage. Mm-hmm. Well, in your story, Projectionist versus Priest, the storyline involves long patterns of sexual abuse. And in the case of sexual abusers, they usually have a history themselves of having been abused. Do you think there's any rehabilitation for an abuser or do you think that they're beyond reform at that point? So, I mean, I can only look at it from the point of view within the story. And I think the projectionist in the story, he was abused by this priest for a long time. And I think in the projectionist's mind, there is no rehabilitation because if there was, he wouldn't have committed himself to this strange dance, this strange ritual the two people have worked out basically the priest would always molest the projectionist on a Wednesday. Like, so the the projectionist knows that as long as the priest is in the porno theater at that time getting off, and as long as the projectionist can watch him doing that, he knows he's not going to, you know, molest any more kids. And I think if the main character, the projectionist thought there was any rehabilitation possible, I think he would probably approach it from that angle, but he's just approaching it from a prevention perspective and he's basically dedicated his life to watching over this priest and making sure the same horrors that happen to him don't happen to other children, if that mm-hmm. answers your question. Yeah. In your story, The Darkness in the Room is Me, you paint a schematic of risky, taboo sexual intrigue involving two men and two women. And I've got to say, this story out of all of them probably caused the most conflicting feelings and thoughts with regard to the characters. So in the midst of this rather bizarre sexual liaison, was there a particular defect of character that you were attempting to showcase? And if so, what was it? Uh, That one's pretty clear to me. That just goes to the good old sin of lust. You know, for me, this story is about the power of lust and how it can make people blind. Because it's like, you know, the main character in this story is he's married, but he still has these thoughts about, you know, other women. And He wants to find a way to get that out of his system. He considers it, I think, a defect, you know, and he feels like overwhelmed with lust. He wants to remove that from his system. 
And, you know, as a result of linking up with this guy who, who turns out to be like kind of a pimp, you know, he thinks he's on the way to, to getting it out of the system so he can go on with his married life. But it just totally blows up on him, though. And it turns out it's kind of a scheme of the pimp to exploit the man and also basically link up with his wife as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's just it's about lust, that story, you know. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, when you think about it, it also kind of makes you think like in our society, things like prostitution are illegal. So it's like, let's say we want to get something out of our system. Well, there's not many ways to go about that. I mean, you could do it like the legitimate way, but there's no guarantee. So what I'm trying to say is like a lot of people will turn to the alternative, which opens you up to the underworld. You know, if you do end up pursuing something like getting a prostitute or someone were to do that, they open themselves up to this other world, you know, where they don't have the same protections because they're already doing something illegal. I think the guy gets into that murky territory in the story as well. He's going into a place like that's not regulated. So that opens him up to a lot of danger, I think. Mm-hmm. So I think you can answer this without any spoilers, but if not, don't worry about it. But I was curious, the pimp in the story, yeah, was he attempting to manufacture a situation where not identically, but relatively close, he was making his client basically guilty of the same sin as him? Was he trying to kind of assuage his own guilt? That's exactly right. Yeah, okay. it's this, he's trying to reachieve purity, basically, because as the man, you know, the John, or if you will, in this situation, as the John is describing how pure his wife is, the pimp is reminded of his own wife that he used to have, who was completely pure, who he had cheated on. So he's thinking, if I can just be with her, you know, have that pure experience with this John's wife, then I can find what I've been looking for, what's been lost after all these years. I can purify myself again. I think that's his aim. So, you know, he has some interesting motivations as well. Yeah, that's that's one of the main reasons, as I said up front, I was like, this story is probably the one that caused the most conflicting thoughts, emotions. Like, I think I know what's going on, but God, you know. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, so in your story, Ricardo's Second Coming, you weave a story about a criminally insane man and allow the reader a view inside of his head as he's committing horrific crimes. I felt sympathy for him because he was delusional, but within those delusions, he was still behaving selfishly and kind of operating on this self-centeredness. So I still held some contempt for him. Was his selfishness the reason he committed these heinous crimes? Like, would he not have committed them if he wasn't so selfish, regardless of the fact that he had some issues? He's definitely a very selfish character. For me, what this character represents is we all have that first love that we think about and we pine over or, I don't know, we just think back. There's nothing like that first love you have. Sometimes you can go like through decades of your life still thinking about that person, what they're up to and what you had with them. So what I did with this character is I took that theme or that idea and then I just removed conscience from the equation. So I was thinking, you know, the average person who still wonders about their old love or maybe wants to reclaim that old love. If they remove the conscience from the equation, well, then you just have a heat seeking missile. And that's what Ricardo is. He's just hell-bent on going back, no matter what this old flame of his is up to now, which he doesn't even know. He's just locked onto that target, 
and he's going to reclaim what he believes is rightfully his. But when you remove conscience, I think it finds a way to, you know, to revisit you in different ways. So for me, there's hints that he's schizophrenic. You know, whenever he kills someone, he can talk to their ghost, basically. Mm -hmm. And it could be schizophrenia, you know, there's hints of that thrown in, but it could just be his conscience, Mm. you know, revisiting the situation, you know, because he's a character with his conscience removed. So I think it's the universe's way of making him feel that there's consequences for his actions, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you're saying that his mental illness might not be so much something like schizophrenia with psychotic features. He may just be a sociopath. But then I guess if he's seeing them, if it's related to his conscience, then he wouldn't be a sociopath. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You're trying to fuck with my head, Nathaniel. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes in the story, it seems like it's only a voice. But sometimes, I don't know, maybe it is more like he's seeing it, you know? Yeah. Well, a lot of the characters in your stories were born cursed by the unfortunate circumstances of nature and or nurture. And in your story, The Dark University, the protagonist engages in what I would consider self-sabotage from a sense of inferiority. Oh, and by the way, the situation with his love interest was heartbreaking. Oh, nice. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I've... uh, I think I have probably experienced that same situation, maybe not to quite that extent, but pretty close. I think kind of uh, the you spot it, you got it kind of thing entered into the equation when I was reading that storyline. So, Oh, but, gotcha. Yeah. So very few people can effectively overcome the burdens that they're saddled with from birth, but some can. So do the ones that can have some common characteristic that you can think of? That's a great question. You know, this is very much a story about generational curse or struggle or something like that. I think the one thing that separates those who succeed from those who don't is just basically simple perseverance. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what the character ends up with at the end of this kind of saga is that he just says, you know, by God, never home again. Not until it's finished once and for all until it finally or until it finally finishes me. So I think that's really it, just not giving up. Of course, that can't solve everyone's problems. I think the goal across generations is just like some kind of betterment. If you can take one step back and two steps forward and just keep some kind of forward progress, you know, Mm -hmm. if you can look at your own lineage and, you know, your own parents and what they accomplished in their lives and what they did and the things that cursed them, you have the advantage of witnessing those curses that they experienced or their shortcomings. And then you can sort of try to to learn from it in a way that they weren't able to, but that they exhibited to you, you know, Mm. maybe they tried to pass on some wisdom or maybe you just observed them and their shortcomings. And um, that's all you can hope for is some kind of betterment, I think with the next generation. Yeah. I know in the, they call it the big book. I hate the fact that they call it the big book, but the book Alcoholics Anonymous in Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. yeah I really wish they didn't call it that. But anyway, uh, there's a part in there talking about hopeless alcoholics. They are fundamentally incapable of being honest with themselves. Hmm. And I wonder like, okay, well, if they're fundamentally incapable of being honest with themselves, then how do you fix that? If it's a fundamental aspect. So that's true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's kind of bleak. I mean, (laughs) you can't 
I mean, yeah, it's kind of like bring on the flood or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about at the beginning, it's like if people can't even see their own truths or look themselves in the eye, mm-hmm. if that's not even capable of achieving. But I don't believe that. I, I definitely believe that people can see their own truth. Sometimes it takes a very long time to see it or to acknowledge it or to know what to do about it. But I definitely think one of our greatest strengths is seeing our own truths, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, your story, Sex Crime Symphony, which is a heartbreaking story about sexual abuse, is noted to be in memory of Angela Wills, if I'm uh, pronouncing her last name correctly. That's right. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, so this story is partially based on a real story. It did happen to this girl named Angela Wills. Basically, when I was a teenager, I remember seeing, it was just a newspaper article that I saw from the Associated Press, and it said, year of pain after rape ends in suicide. I remember the headline and Mm. I remember reading the article and it really struck me because as a young person, you're pure of heart, you know, then when you get older, you're less jaded. And when I saw that story, she was about the same age that I was at the time. And she had basically been sexually assaulted by, she was babysitting, trying to get some extra money to, you know, buy a car. And she ended up being sexually assaulted by someone who was drunk you know, in the household that she was babysitting at. And she was just wrecked after that. She was never the same. And on the one year anniversary of the event, she hanged herself in the woods. So for me, it just really struck me. It sounds like it's almost something you would make up the fact that she hung herself on the the anniversary, but that really happened. So I guess I always wanted to write this story as a tribute to her and also to express something about how, you know, sometimes in society, justice fails us. And, you know, we rely on the system to to punish or to forgive. And it just fails us. So for me in this story, society has failed. And now it's time for some kind of other element to emerge to right the wrong. And that's what happens. Basically, they're described as like ape-like creatures. They arise to avenge her, not only avenge her, but also to to mourn her properly and sort of pay her tribute. So that was kind of my way of processing that real event that happened, I guess, like in a narrative way. I tried to be respectful of, you know, the subject matter, because I know it's it's a touchy type of thing for someone to write about sexual assault. So I tried to do it in a respectful way. Yeah. Yeah, and that was a salient point you made about how rape is basically murder it's very slow murder in some cases oh that's right yeah that was the statement that she was making you know there's no crime worse than that you know mm-hmm. in some ways you know yeah well in your story a king among beggars your character comedically moves from one form of pimping to another <laughs> and The way he sells the con is by playing on people's empathy for the state of helplessness that we're all born into, regardless of wealth or privilege. And this seemed, I think I'm going in chronological order as far as the stories are concerned. So we're kind of like, we're kind of midway into it. It's kind of like this story was, I don't know if it was your intention or not, but it gave a little comic relief for some, some pretty dark subject matter. But it does touch on some subject matter that's a little stark. What other common ground do you think we can find with those that are less fortunate that would help us have a little bit more empathy and sympathy? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's basically imagination. That's what I think it is. I think empathy is the ultimate 
benevolent act of imagination. If you have a strong imagination, then you can put yourself in someone else's shoes and then you can imagine what they're going through. And that's really what empathy is. So I think if more people were capable of that, might not solve everything. But most of the people I think who are cruel or just indifferent in life, it might be because they don't have a strong enough imagination. And that might be why in artistic communities, people with more creative tendencies often have a softer heart and uh, because they do have that imaginative ability mm-hmm. to you know, put themselves in someone's shoes and imagine the situation they're going through and imagine that that could be me. I mean, that could have been me in different circumstances. So it'd be nice if people had more of that. And I think that's one thing like literature does. I think that's one thing movies do and, and all the art forms. They help people to sharpen their, their imaginative tendencies and things of that nature. So, Yeah, that was a, a really profound statement that the pimp makes when he's holding the baby. I'm paraphrasing, but basically... Feast your eyes upon that state that we're all born into, completely helpless and screaming. Yeah, that's right. You know, we all start like this, you know, like mm-hmm. begging and kicking and screaming and things like that. So it's funny because he is kind of a con man, but he also has kind of a good heart. He's trying to do his best, I think. You know, he left the pimping industry and now he's basically <laughs> doing that kind of thing, but he's managing bums you know mm-hmm. so when he gives that speech at the end i think he's very full of himself you know so mm-hmm. it's a nice sentiment but i think he's also trying to make the sale mm-hmm. and he's also trying to assert his dominance over his territory you know because there's another new beggar in town and saying like basically i don't need you this new beggar is saying i don't need you and you know let's have a contest who can make more money so <laughs> so while it's a nice sentiment that this manager of bums is stating. I'm not sure if <laughs> it's probably about like 80% heartfelt and 20% like mm-hmm. part of the con, you know, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Oh yeah. He's definitely gone from pimping prostitutes to pimping empathy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, in your story cleverly titled Deus Oryx Machina, you tell a story of a man that seems to be on the brink of full-on drug addiction, if not there already. There seems to be a theme in your book of generational curses, especially with addiction. So I was wondering, was the man of the dregs in your story attempting to save his son from the knowledge and the sight of his father succumbing to addiction, and by doing so keep his son from following in his footsteps, or what exactly was at play there? Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at Darian, who's basically one of the victims of this dealer whose drug is just completely addictive, you know, this dealer basically collects souls and Darian's one of those souls. And you can see that he's he's completely helpless. And the dealer is so ruthless, like he knows what buttons to press on people, you know, he knows their weaknesses. And so he just enjoys toying with them too. I think that for him, it's like entertainment, you know, this Darian guy is just like a clown to him. He's just like, give me some entertainment, you know, like I've collected all these souls. I've got all these addicts. Now it's almost like that part's boring. Now, you know, show me something funny, you know, dance, you know? And so Part of that, though, he's like prodding Darian is like, you know, 
you know, I know you have a son and I'm going to come after him too. I'm going to make him addicted. And, you know, Darian, yeah, I mean, his last like shreds of humanity, I guess he's trying to say, you know, don't you dare go near my son. Mm. But he's ultimately like helpless himself to prevent that mm. from happening. Not that that happens in the story, but what could he really do to stop that from happening? You can probably almost imagine like the cycle of addiction repeating. Mm. And this dealer is so ruthless that he probably would land back on that rooftop and wait until this guy's son is, is you know, a little older to get him addicted as well. Mm. So I think the original phrase is deus ex machina. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so based on the meaning of that title, yeah. what intervened on his behalf? You know, don't give away the ending, but... Oh, I understand. What brought him to the realization of what he needed to do and gave him the uh, strength to carry it through? I mean, for me, that's like in the story, that's like basically a divine intervention. I mean, you could look at it from, you know, a religious standpoint or whatever, where it's like, you know... It's God intervening and, and entering this guy's body to make him fight the dealer. But you could also think of it more in general terms, like it's the universe stepping in to say that perfection is not possible. Because when I look at this story, I think more of the dealer and I'm like, what is this story about? Like for me, it's about the dealer's perfectionism because he wants to collect every soul. And if any soul resists him, which no one ever has, then he's lost. And he wants to throw the whole thing away. So for me, this story is about how close we can get to reaching that perfection in our lives. But right as we think we have it, it slips away from us. So that for me is like what thematically this story represents and that ending represents, you know, it's like the dealer in his perfect kingdom that he's built. And it just crumbles because this one lowly person finds the way to defeat him. Well, out of all the characters in the book, which do you think had the most honorable intentions? Um, you know, the one that we talked about, projectionist versus priest, comes to mind mm -hmm. because I think the main character, the projectionist, his dedication to this ritual between himself and the priest, the fact that he's not taking revenge on this man for what he did to him, uh, the fact that he's watching over him, he's dedicated his life to making sure that this priest doesn't hurt anyone else. Mm -hmm. I think that is a very honorable thing that he's committed his life to, to this cause. So that one comes to mind. Yeah. Well, when it comes to writing characters that you don't have personal experience to draw from, are there any mental or spiritual practices you engage in to strengthen your ability to empathize with them? I guess I would say that you just get to, to let loose and, and have fun. You know, I think it's a very liberating thing when you take a character who doesn't have the same boundaries that you have to have in your life. As an author, you don't have to have killed someone to write about killing, or you don't have to have push things too far in your own life to write about those things. I think it's a very liberating process. And I think you can inhabit that mindset more easily than most people think, you know, and it can actually be a fun thing, not just to write about dark things, but to, you know, ride the wave of imagination toward, you know, what that character would do, a character with less conscience than you have, or a character who doesn't have the same limitations that you do. Mm. And I also think, you know, it's kind of this cardinal rule that when you're writing something and you're not having fun with it as an author, I think like probably the audience might be experiencing the same thing. So I think a lot of these, you know, anti-hero characters are, are fun to write because they don't have 
the same boundaries that we do. And so we can explore things through these characters that we wouldn't ordinarily be doing in real life, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Well, tell me about the cover. Let me grab this real quick. The uh, the cover of the book, listeners at home, I'm holding the book up. <laughs> a bit of an outline of a fetus holding a revolver. And it seems to me, anyway, to play on the theme of people being born into adversity. Am I on to something there? Or? I think that's a great interpretation. I mean, I worked with Matthew Revert on the cover, and he's a very prolific indie cover artist. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the books that have come out in the past couple of years, he's been doing it a long time, and he's highly professional, and he's great, you know. It took a while for us to come up with the final product. The first idea he presented was really good. I wanted something subversive. And the first concept that he came up with was he did kind of like a 70s era font with a smoking gun. And I, and I sat on that for a while. It would have been a fine cover, you know. But then I had this idea of what if we did like a fetus in the womb that was holding a gun, you know. And the image in the brainstorming went even farther than that. It was like, what if the baby in the womb had like a crown of thorns or something? You know what I mean? So <laughs> anyway, when he rendered that idea, he basically boiled it down to its elemental form. And I was very happy with the cover. And um, I think it's like kind of an iconic, memorable cover. So yeah. I, whatever process that took for us, it was totally worth it. And I credit him as well because he's phenomenal at what he does. So. Yeah, very minimalist and clean. I like it. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's an advantage, actually, of indie publishing. I think a lot of the mainstream book covers are just kind of boring, you know? It's either like a background or the outline of a person or something very simple with the lettering. You really have a lot more freedom with indie publications to make the cover something special, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's a huge advantage of being in indie publishing. Well, tell me about Close to the Bone Publishing. So the person who runs Close to the Phone, his name is Craig Douglas, and he lives in England. So all the books are published out of England. For me, it's just a classic case of all you need is one yes. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to pretend that I just started trying to get this collection published. It's been a long journey for me. Mm -hmm. I'm almost afraid to say how long. <laughs> <laughs> but finally, I got that yes, and it happened at the right time in my life. And I credit... Craig Douglas, because he said, you know, here's your yes, and gave me a publication date. And it could have been published as is, but it was about a year from the yes until the publication date. And I started looking at these stories and really breaking them apart and adding new elements, modernizing them. So for me, that process didn't just end with the yes. That's where a lot of the stuff began. Mm -hmm. It was an interesting journey toward publication. And I just credit him and his company for giving me the leeway to, you know, have my own vision and just being supportive and very professional, not at all controlling. He never limited anything I did. I was basically just working independently on revising the stories and things of that nature. So it's been a very positive, hands-off type of experience for me to publish with him. So tell me about your previously published work. I think I read that you've had some, I think, short stories in, in periodicals or anthologies. That's right. Yeah, I've, um, you know, I did spend a number of years in the past decade submitting stories and things of that nature to different literary journals and also, you know, genre publications. 
I did have a few of these stories in their earlier forms that were published, but, you know, honestly, they were so different that I was just like, wow, this is almost like a different story now. So, but yeah, I've definitely published things before, but never, you know, this is really my first big work that I would consider that has been out there for public consumption. Okay. Well, when did you begin writing and what was the catalyst that propelled you into writing seriously with the intent to publish? I would say that I kind of had an idea of something I wanted to do. And, you know, when I was about 16, I was always an avid moviegoer. For my family, really, my parents, the theater is almost like our church, really. That was our family activity. Mm -hmm. And so, and I also got the chance to see a lot of, you know, like R-rated stuff when I was young because they didn't nice. really, uh, <laughs> my parents didn't really care, you know, about. You lucky bastard. <laughs> I know, right? So I had like a big head start on all this adult type of storytelling, you know? So I would say that it was watching movies that originally got me really interested in the idea of writing stories. And then I did commit myself to an MFA graduate program after being an undergraduate and being an English major, I did make the commitment. I was working at the same time, though, so it took me like four years to finish the program. And I was also kind of like the odd man out in the program because in those MFA programs, the majority of people are trying to write literary fiction and genre fiction. It's just not something you see a lot in those programs. And I was kind of like the guy who wrote the genre fiction in the literary MFA program. But they were very, yeah, they were very nice. And you know what's great is like they were my captive audience. So, you know, in the workshops and stuff, it's like, well, you have to read this. <laughs> you have to read this. You don't have a choice. So, you know, nice. you better give me some nice. feedback on this, like, dark <laughs> story, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I was serious enough about it to do that program. And I would say that was kind of the biggest commitment I made to it. And like many writers, I lost the dream over the years and, you know, had crippling doubt. And I was like, wow, you know. I tried to turn my back on it. I tried to ignore it. I tried to forget it, but I kept returning to the idea of just getting my work out there. So, I mean, that's a typical writer's story, though. Yeah. All of this stuff about rejection and crippling self-doubt and mm. give up on it, you return to it, and things of that nature. Imposter syndrome. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Take it till you make it, I guess. Well, where's the strangest place you've ever gotten a story idea? That's a fun one. You know, the mall story, the one with the anorexic girl. I remember I was in the mall. Mm -hmm. I was going to a wedding. I was about 19 or 20 and I was going to a wedding and this, you know, the wedding was kind of like north of where I lived. And being in that mall gave me the idea that just the seed for that story that was set in a mall. So I would say that one definitely comes to mind. Okay. Well, is there anything you do besides reading that you feel makes you a better writer? Um. I guess, you know, I would say maybe cliche answer, but, but living life, I think it's important to have a good balance. I think it's important to like try to gain that wisdom you get in life that sometimes comes with age and experience. When you're young, like you're so hungry to get your stuff out there. But looking back, I'm glad that this didn't come out back then. I'm glad I didn't get the yes back then because I wouldn't have had like the flavor. It would have had the same flavor, you know? So, yeah, it's important to live life and let it seep into your skin. For me, like being around people is important. I kind of feel people's energy when they're around me, like when I'm out in public. I don't know. I just like, it sounds corny, but like being one with people or just observing people or feeling their energy 
things like that, you know. And of course, as I mentioned, watching movies. I mean, I think you got to keep up with entertainment in different mediums, you know. Movies have always been a big influence for me as well, so. Mm-hmm. Well, the harsh, unfair realities of life are usually the primary themes of noir stories. So, for instance, people are attracted to horror stories for the thrill. So what do you think attracts people to noir? Um, So I would say, you know, I think noir is all about the seedy side of the self. I think horror, a lot of times, I don't know, might be about like more external things. But I think noir is more like feeling about the layers of what is within us, the dark stuff within the anti-hero or, you know, the noir hero, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I think it might also be more sensual. It might be a more sensual form of storytelling because there's usually a lot of sexual stuff in the stories, but it's not like a you get punished for sex kind of thing where it happens in a lot of horror, (laughs) you know, horror movies like... (laughs) with the teenagers and stuff like that. I think it's just the underbelly of things, the underbelly of society and daily life. I think maybe that's what comes to mind for me. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Carl Jung and his conception of the psyche. And one of the parts of the unconscious mind is the shadow self, you know, that dark aspect of your psyche and personality. And I think, you know, his whole point of life was individuation and the way you individuated was by integrating with your shadow not suppressing it and and not avoiding it so i think you're kind of in a sense integrating with your shadow when you kind of participate in dark noir stories yeah one of my favorite types of story is like the every man pushed those limits and then you see the violence that that individual's been hiding it's been in there the whole time but it's almost like they reach some kind of ecstasy through that violence, they realize themselves through mm. the story. You know, I think that happens in a lot of the noir stories. There's always some kind of explosion of violence that's some kind of expression of the self. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's why everybody, I mean, granted, it was a great story and great acting, but I think that's probably why a lot of people like Breaking Bad so much. Oh, yeah, right. You know, because that guy, he's just in this milk toast existence and he's diagnosed with cancer he's got to find a way to take care of his family and then when push comes to shove he realized he had this dark place that just manifested into what was it heisenberg is that what he went by (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, and it's like usually the characters they realize their potential you know it's like Mm -hmm. they're good at this you know like this bad stuff that society says you're not supposed to do and they have a gift for it and it was hidden before you know those are interesting stories to tell well, one of the subgenres of noir that I like is tech noir. So, which is better, Blade Runner or Blade Runner twenty forty nine? Yeah, you know, I couldn't say which one's better, but one thing I can tell you about it is, I think one had better pacing. I think maybe twenty forty nine had better pacing because mm-hmm. I remember putting on Blade Runner, and you know, I rented it a while back, and I had my wife in the room and her parents and they were asleep. (laughs) So I think, you know, for someone who's not into that kind of film, they might be a little bored with that one, actually. You know, the pacing's a little slow in parts, I would say, even though it's a great movie. I mean, I really liked watching it, but 
I also had the advantage of watching 2049 in the theater. Mm -hmm. And so it was such an immersive experience and it really surprised me. And I had been away from the theater for a while. So seeing that, it was a ride, you know, I really enjoyed Mm -hmm. 2049. And it's also like a huge accomplishment to take a story like that continuation, Mm -hmm. find the right angle for the story, something fascinating, like a fascinating new place to take it and continue it, pay homage to the first, but also take the story in a new direction. I think that's a huge accomplishment. And you said it was 2049 that your parents were watching? No, it was the first. It was the first. Blade okay. Runner, okay. the first one. Okay. I rented I the first Blade Runner, and it was like my wife and her parents, you know. I was just watching because I like movies and stuff. But I think they found it a little slow because at some point I turned around and they were asleep. So. <laughs> yeah. Because 2049, I saw that in the theater three times. Yeah. And then bought it and watched it two more times. And I think probably the reason that movie is so good is because it was directed by Denis Villeneuve. Oh yeah. He's great. Oh my that God. Guy that guy just, can't, he can't make a bad movie apparently. Right. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. I still need to catch up with enemy. I've heard that's good. I haven't seen it. Oh yeah. Neither um, have I. Yeah. I need to think to catch of it. Up with that. Well, what is something you can accomplish in the written word that you could never accomplish in film? Well, the thing about the written word the great thing about it is like when you have this book or you have a story, it's self-contained, it's its own world and it's complete. Mm-hmm. And it's a very intimate thing between the writer and the reader. And I mean, movies, for instance, they're a phenomenal accomplishment, but it's like a team effort. And I would hate to be a screenplay writer for a number of reasons. Number one, your screenplay, it might be perfect, but in order to become what it's meant to be, like for it to become the butterfly, as it were, It has to be made and there's a lot of compromise involved to your vision. You know, the thing about a book is like when it sits on yourself, I mean, it's it's just complete. You know, it doesn't require anything else except the words on the page and the mind of the reader. It's just a very intimate interplay. Yeah, I feel like you can make things react as they would in the real world better than you could with a film because you're kind of in a film unless you're doing the actual thing, which I know there's special effects and there's actual explosions and stuff like that, that they manufacture, but still it's, you can't quite get it to real life the way you can on the printed page projected into the reader's mind. You know what I mean? And there's no budgetary limitations. Yeah. Yeah. You can blow (laughs) shit up all day long. (laughs) Yeah. There you go. (laughs) Well, what is the life of Nathaniel Blackhelm like outside of writing? Well, that's definitely the majority of my life is basically just not writing. I mean, I I always want to do more, but you can only do what you can do because mainly for me, I work, I have a day job, which consumes so much of my time. Mm-hmm. The other part of my life is just my family. I'm married with two kids. So that's pretty much it. I mean, it's pretty mundane day-to-day stuff. So are the, uh, the strapping young lads on your Instagram page, those are your sons? I was assuming they were your bodyguards, like maybe you had uh, a security detail or... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, God, there's a lot of wrestling mm. that goes on in the house and things like that. It's like MMA, you know. <laughs> um, a lot of that, you know, having two boys, a lot of rough housing and things of that nature. All right. Well, Nathaniel, it has been great talking with you. It's been great. I really appreciate you having me on here. Absolutely. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? 
I uh, just wanted to say, feel free to reach out to me. I'm on Instagram as in Black Helm. I'm also on Twitter as in Black Helm. And I'm on Facebook as Nathaniel Black Helm. Also, the book is available. Little Black Crimes is available on Amazon for $9.99. And it's also free on Kindle Unlimited. And if you have limited funds and want a physical copy, like for review purposes, feel free to reach out to me and we'll see what we can do. All right. Outstanding. Listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Nathaniel, thank you again for joining me. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.